the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. SoCal Live with Pastor Dudley Rutherford, the senior pastor of Shepherd Church, and I'm your afternoon host here on SoCal Live, and it has been a wonderful afternoon. It's beautiful weather here in SoCal. Thank you for listening wherever you are, and um, again, I you are in... in uh, in a great position here to have a great moment here on on Christian Radio in Los Angeles, the largest Christian radio station in America, KKLA. And um, our our guest today is a friend of mine named Nagme uh, Panahi. And Nagme, how are you doing today? I've got to ask you that question. How you how you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me on 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 over the airways today and. I I I know a little bit about your story because I back many moons ago you were at our church and we were interviewing you on stage, um, and I, I I think a lot of people are familiar with your story. But I, I want to we want to talk today kind of about the 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 persecuted church uh, that's all around the world that's going on and your ministry involved with that. You you were kind of a, a a national figure for a while. You were involved with with trying to free your husband Saeed, who was a pastor uh, from Boise, and he was in an Iranian prison for three years. And a lot has has happened since then. But for, first of all, I want you to know you you still live in Boise, correct? Yeah. And did you know my I daughter did. lives in Boise? No. Yeah, she's there. And uh, tell everyone why people want to move to Boise. Everyone in California is moving to Idaho. I don't think people. Uh, I don't want to uh, advertise Idaho too much. It's it's a great <laughs> place. A lot of Californians coming to Idaho. I, I've been there several times, uh, and it, it is a beautiful place. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time to be here. But I want to go back to 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 people knowing your story because you're you were ra- you were born and raised a Muslim, correct? Yep. I was born in Iran, raised in a very strong Muslim family. My my dad was probably more of the stronger Muslim than my mom. And uh, our my full last name is actually Shariat Panahi. Um, Shariat is the Islamic law. Panahi means protector. So my last name means protector of the Islamic law. Um, when we became citizens in the U.S., we dropped it. I dropped, my dad dropped a Shariat. And so my last name just became Panahi. But um, so our last name meant protector of the Islamic law, which from our last name, you could, um, like our, just, we're a direct descendant of the prophet of Islam, Muhammad. So my now, dad now, and now I, explain that to me again. You're the direct, you're, you believe you're the direct descendant of Muhammad? Yes, we, we actually are. And, and the Shia, Shia Islam, uh, there's something called Sayyid, which means you can prove that you are, have a direct line, bloodline to the Prophet of Islam, and you actually, there's certain times in the year where people pay, like, certain, like, um, I don't know how to say, like, pay 
certain respect and even money if you're you're part of that royalty, you know, connected to the Islamic, the Prophet. So my we always were treated differently as Sayyids, and uh, my grandma and my dad, like, prided themselves on it. They would talk about it a lot, that we were, we were direct descendants, we're of a holy kind of blood, and uh, and people, if they found out we were Sayyids, they would just, like, treat us differently. And from our last name, people could tell it was almost like having a different different status in society by just saying our last name. It, it, people could tell we were uh, descendant of, of Muhammad. Unbelievable! So, so you were you were born and raised in this in, in in part of the in a sense the royal bloodlines of Muhammad, and then you, you were in. Did you become a Christian in Iran or in America? No, no, not in Iran. I we hadn't really heard anything about Jesus when we lived in Iran. Okay. Um, the war there was an eight-year war with Iraq that forced us out of Iran. Okay. And my my dad uh, was very educated. He gotten his master's in Oregon State University in the U.S. He came from a wealthy family, and so they sent him uh, to America to get study. And then he went back to Iran, married my mom, and they had us. So. We were able to just come through my dad's green card. Okay. And when the war got really bad, uh, towards the end of the war, it was like chemical warfare. And also my brother at that time, we were eight, nine years old. My brother was going to sign to go to war. And um, the schools had become very Islamic. They were brainwashing the kids to go and die in a holy war. They were saying, especially to boys, if you sign up to go to war, you're going to go to, and if you die, you go to heaven. It's, it's like jihad and um, and so my brother really wanted to go to war and he was, and, and if little kids, uh, elementary school kids, they could sign up and go. And if the parents objected to it, they would arrest the parents saying that they were against the Iranian government. So my brother was like ready to sign up and there was nothing my parents could do to stop him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they would do with kids, the Iranian government, they would make them run through mines and the mines would blow up and then the soldiers would go in. So basically oh. if a kid went to feel they knew they wouldn't survive or they would be missing limbs. So my parents were really afraid of that on top of the chemical warfare that had just started with Iraq. And um, my dad, they just decided to leave. And um, we left when I was nine years old. I had not heard anything about Jesus. We were, all we heard about was Islam and Muhammad. And uh, we did the Islamic prayer. It's all you knew. It's all you knew. That's all we knew. We had no idea who Jesus was. So, so when you left Iran, how old were you? We were nine when you came to the states. Yeah, and we actually came to California, uh, San Jose. Oh, so you transferred from California to to Idaho. I see how it goes. I <laughs> okay. see it's good for you, but not for us. I see. <laughs> this is your little secret. Okay. Okay. So, so tell us how you became a Christian. Well, it's interesting because I don't I don't know uh, how, how many of the listeners know what a lot of people that are becoming Christians in the Middle East are becoming Christians, not through missionaries, but through visions and dreams. So that's how we became Christian. One day, uh, my brother, we we're, were, we're going to we're going to I want you to talk about that specifically in a moment, but continue on with your story. OK, so when um, we had just come to the U.S. My brother, you know, right now he has a doctorate in quantum physics. He's, he got it from University of Chicago. Very, his his part. He's more like a mathematical person, so he's not emotional. Okay. So one day he was emotional and crying, and he was telling me he ran out. He was in a room, and he ran out. I was in the living room. He ran out. and He said, "Nagme, I found the God we've been looking for. His name is Jesus." Because 
when we had grown up in war, we had prayed together, like, why would God allow this? Who is God? And we were trying to know God through Islam. We would follow my dad's footsteps of praying and the Islamic prayer and fasting. And we really wanted, had a lot of questions about why there was, we could see people dying and war. And uh, so when we came to the States, my brother said, I found the answer. I found the God. Like, like what we've been looking for, his name is Jesus. And I, he was crying. And that really affected me. And I asked him, I said, what are you talking Who is Jesus? Like, I'd never heard that name. I said, what's going on? He said, I saw him. Uh, and he, he spoke to me. I think it was like a dream or a vision. And he said, he, and all I felt was complete love. And all of my questions about the war, everything got answered. He's like, all I saw was love. All I felt, and I just felt the love of God, and everything made sense. And so from that moment, we uh, searched and found people that told us we were asking everyone who's Jesus. And finally found some people. We, we couldn't speak English at that time, so there was people, Farsi-speaking people who told us and gave us Farsi Bibles, and um, and we we didn't even think how it, affect, it would affect our parents. Right. Um, because we were so excited. We got baptized right in the swimming pool in the uh, townhouse area we were at, and we just came home and we're like, we had our Bibles in hand. We're like, guess what happened? Not knowing what was coming, which was a Uh-oh. lot of anger. <laughs> a lot of anger from my parents and persecution. Basically, my dad was, so upset that he said, "I he sees like this is the worst thing that could have happened." I he said, "You know, it's better if we would have all died in the war." He said, "You've lost your culture, you've lost your identity, you've lost we've lost." You know, <clears throat> uh, Muhammad would would turn in his grave, <laughs> just like you know, he was saying a lot of words that was just like you don't know where, where my grandma had taught Islam, and she was a teacher of the Islamic uh, religion in mosque. And he was just, like, beside himself. He said, we're going to go back to Iran. I didn't know this was going to happen. And he was very upset, very angry. My brother cried, and he said, but, Dad, I don't want, I don't believe in that anymore. I don't want to die in the war. And um, so my dad was contemplating taking us back to Iran when uh, my uncle, who had just graduated from a university in California, said, you know, this is a radical decision. Why don't you guys moved to Idaho. I just found a job in a place called Boise, Idaho. And he said, you know what, there's not a lot of Christians there. They, and and they're thinking California was filled with Christians because they correlated like Hollywood movie, all of that to Christians, Christianity, and they thought Idaho was not going to have as many Christians. That, that might be one well, of the funniest things you've ever said, Nagme. <laughs> I don't know. How, how old was your brother? How old was your brother at this time? You were nine, and he we was... We were nine. We'd literally just come to the U.S. maybe a few weeks or maybe a few months. I can't remember. But, but, but he's, a, he's he around your kid. same age. Oh, we're, we're twins. Yeah, we're nine. Oh, we're I didn't know nine. you were twins. I'm sorry. That's my bad. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm Dudley Brotherford. I'm the senior pastor of Shepherd Church. I'm talking to Nagme Panahi, who was, who was from Iran. Families tied, her family ties go all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad. And you're in California... Uh, because of the, the what's going on in Iran, and and you have this, your brother has this vision and this dream, and you both give your lives to Jesus Christ, and you're baptized, and now your uncle wants to move back to Idaho because he thinks California is full of Christians. Yeah, my uncle told my dad, like, 
let's give Boise, Idaho a chance. There, there does, I don't think there's there's a lot no of Christians like there. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and he said it seems in the middle of nowhere, and your kids are—they're only nine. They're going to forget about this. You know, they're going to forget about Jesus, and so that my dad thought it was a good plan, and we moved here, and they really did watch us. They took away our Bible. Mm. They, uh, my parents, uh, would not let us, even me and my brother, to pray together. They really thought, you know, we're so young, we're going to forget about it. And they, uh, uh, there was times where my dad was, like, trying to force us to go back to Islam and just very angry, you know. And we just got, you know, God kept our faith because I don't even know how at age nine we can continue to stay stand strong for our faith when our parents were so against it. So It, it really is a remarkable story. So the, yeah. so the day so, comes, uh, there's a great... There's a great twist to the story, correct? There is. My parents, who taken away my Bible, uh, our Bible had started reading it at when I was right around age 16. Uh, I didn't know that at that time, but they had started reading the Bible because my mom was going through a really bad depression, and um, she just picked up the Bible. And then my dad had noticed change in her, and he asked her, like, what's going on? You seem happier. You seem more at peace. And she told him. And he had started reading the Bible. So they were secretly reading the Bible without telling us um, right around seven years after the fact. But your um, dad your dad started to see a difference in your, in your, in your mom. Yes. That's what actually, that's when, because my mom was afraid to tell him. Uh, but seeing the change in her, he wasn't as upset as he had been, as he had been like seven years earlier. With us. <laughs> <He> was, <laughs> okay. So he started reading, reading the Bible himself and he wasn't as upset so i didn't know that when i was a teenager but i did notice a change in them that they weren't as mean to us and as forceful and the whole time though the, the seven eight years that go by here you're you and your brother are you still are you involved in a church are you do you find another no. bible how, how how do you maintain your faith through those years um so no, we didn't have a Bible, no church, no Christian influence. I remember before my parents took the Bible, it was a, a new, te- it was a Psalm New Testament Bible. Okay, that was it was like more of an evangelical Bible that they gave to you know. Anyways, I had read somewhere uh, in Psalms two um, that stuck with me, a verse that stuck with me mm. uh, until I could actually get a Bible when I went to college, but. Um, it said, you know, today uh, I've begotten you, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And that verse just stuck to me. So when my parents took away the Bible, I just kept praying that for verse. Wow. And I kept just saying, God, you've begotten me. I've become your child. All I ask of you is I don't want fame. I don't want money. I want the nations. I want to see salvation of nations. And I didn't. it's interesting how it all played out where years later when Said went to prison, I was sitting in front of the United Nations with over a hundred ambassadors of different countries, and I was sharing the gospel, and it was being translated to every language in the world, and that I, it just hit me mm. God, that I had prayed this prayer since I had been nine to share the gospel with the nations, and Said's imprisonment had given me that platform to mm. share the gospel with many, many different nations and millions of Muslims. Uh, because it was on secular media, it was on BBC and CNN and NBC and Fox. It was all over and all over Persian media. So I was just, I was just crying. I remember sitting at 
and, and at the United Nations sharing and looking at all the ambassadors and seeing all the translators and just tears coming, thinking, wow, it just hit me. I've been praying this since I was nine. So no, I didn't have a Bible. I didn't have church, but I just kept praying that verse that I remembered I had read. I didn't really have a Bible till I went to college. Okay. It was the first time I really got involved in church. When I was 16, I started sneaking out and going to a local church. Right. Um, but really my involvement with church really happened uh, in college. Okay. And, and, and so let's go back to your dad and what happens to him. He, uh, he's, he, he's, he's, had, seeing, he's seeing the change in your mom. Then, then what happens? He sees the change in my mom, then he starts reading the Bible himself, and um, something happened as they both were reading the Word of God. They just believed that that was true. And I, I think my dad, from what I remember, he was afraid to tell his mom. My grandma was, I think, 70 years old at that time. But interesting enough, soon after my dad got saved and he shared with his mom, his, his, his my grandma also got saved at an old age, which is your grandma got saved, too? Yeah, she got saved, too. And she's been a teacher of Islam, and they were both, my dad and my grandma, had been so proud of their Islamic heritage. So they had to kind of, that was, then when they became Christian, that was nothing they could really be proud of anymore. <laughs> so, uh, what an unbelievable story. And uh, Yeah, again, so my dad, he actually, uh, from the time he got saved, um, I didn't really see the process because when I came out of college, I that's when I noticed like he was on fire. He got baptized right after I got out of college. We found a church and he got baptized there, and he was a member of that church until the day he passed away last year. Him and my mom. Uh, so from 2000 for 20 years, he was part of a church, and you know the first thing he did when he became a Christian was. Uh, he was very well known in the Iranian government because um, he uh, was a very strong Muslim, and they were going to appoint him as um, uh, um, ambassador for communication, like a really high post in the government. But my dad refused because he just saw a very unstable government that would just kill anyone they were suspicious of. Right. So my dad refused it, but he was very respected by the Iranian Islamic government because he was very he was a very strong Muslim. So when he got saved. Uh, right after we uh, graduated from college, he was on fire, and he decided to take a whole bunch of Bibles back to Iran. And um, okay. he, he did, because he didn't—and uh, that's a different story of how just he was able to smuggle it into the country. But he—it was just—he was on fire until—I never really saw him um, waver in his faith. Mm -hmm. From the moment he got saved, he was giving out Bibles. Even right before he passed, he had a— uh, he'd already had his suitcases ready to go, and um, he would visit Iran at least, you know, a couple times a year. His suitcase had all these Bibles and stuff, and when he passed, but we had to unpack it. But um, he was just, you know, from the time he got saved, he was just very, uh, very focused on Jesus and sharing the gospel. And, and, and when, when you look back at that, are you in shock by all all those stories that you just, this story that you're telling me? Are you amazed by this story? I am, and a lot of my relatives, about 50 relatives got saved. Aunts, uncles, cousins, my grandma. Um, so through my dad's, you know, salvation, he started sharing with his siblings and my, his mom, my grandma, and I, you know, I went to back to Iran in 2001, and I started sharing, and we just saw a lot of fruits 
uh, with relatives and close family coming to know the Lord. And this is, again, people who are proud of their Islamic heritage that were coming to know the Lord. So uh, I do want to say uh, something I mentioned early on about people coming to know Jesus in the Middle East through dreams and visions. Listen, we got to take a, a short break, but I want to hear I want to hear the rest of this story. And I hope you're putting all this down in a book, uh, Nagme. Uh, because uh, so many, so often we look at certain peoples for whatever reason, and we think, well, God's not working, but God is always working behind the scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, my name is Dudley Rutherford. I'm the senior pastor of Shepherd Church. I'm, I'm your host here on SoCal Live, and I'm talking to Nagme Panahi. And uh, when we come out of this break, she's going to go into these, uh, what's happening uh, these supernatural dreams and visions, people being saved in the Middle East, and then we're going to get into the underground church that she's involved with and that she is helping uh, what they call the persecuted church, and we're going to talk about how people can get involved, but more about that ministry. Again, this is Dudley Rutherford. Thank you for joining me here today on SoCal Live. Oh, it is good to know that every single step of the way that God is with you, no matter what you're going through, no matter how hopeless your situation seems. Talking today to Nagme Panahi, who was born a, a, a Muslim in Iran and comes to the comes to the great state of California and uh, becomes a believer at age nine, supernaturally ends up going back to Idaho with her family just to get away from all the Christians in California. <laughs> And there her dad, who's got bloodlines all the way back to the prophet Muhammad, ends up giving his life to the Lord. It really is a story that only God could orchestrate. And um, it, it just it just goes to show that God is working around the world in ways that most of us have no idea the things that God is able and capable of doing. And uh, again, my name is Pastor Dudley Rutherford. I'm just a local pastor here in uh, the great city of Los Angeles, the Great Shepherd Church. And we're here every night on KKLA at 7 o'clock. You can tune in on the Internet or tune in if you live in L.A. And uh, our services are online. would love to have you join us. And you can get a hold of me on Instagram at Dudley Rutherford. Uh, and if you want to get a hold of Nagme Panahi, all you've got to do is look her up on social media. She's everywhere. And... Nogme's real good at getting back to you if you message uh, her on on Instagram or Facebook. But Nogme, you were talking before the break. We were talking about um, just how God works supernaturally and the lives of people in the Middle East is how He's reaching people supernaturally. And you want you want to dive into that a little bit further? Yeah. Before that, one thing I was reminded of was um, if you're if you're Sayyid, descendant of Muhammad, you actually wear a different. Uh, if you're a mullah, you wear a different color um, turban. So mullahs that are uh, uh, a direct descendant, or like our family had, you know, mullahs in our family, they would wear a different colors, saying like it was almost like a higher caste. Wow. Of saying that they were so they wear the color green. But anyways. Um, yeah, one thing I noticed when I uh, when I graduated from college, I ended up going to Iran soon after September 11, and um, I just felt like you know the Middle East after the, after the September 11th. The yeah after after the after the towers were bombed or destroyed. Yeah, I literally saw the towers collapse. I saw 
um, I, there was rumors of war happening in the Middle East, and I just knew I had to go and share the gospel. And I don't know how I connected those dots, but it was God because He. There was a there was just such a burden on my heart to do that. And um, interesting enough, and my parents thought they were new believers. They thought I was crazy, and um, but you know they ended up supporting me to go. But it was a, a really empty airplane flying into the Middle East soon after September 11th, and uh, flying into Iran. So um, interesting enough, when I went right in the early 2000s, when I really started, you know, sharing the gospel with relatives and uh, started a little home group in my in my, in my apartment, um, I didn't realize it till later. That's when the house church movement kind of exploded in Iran. So I was, when God sent me to Iran, that was the beginning of an explosion of revival and move house church movement. So it was exciting to be a part of that because from 2001, when I was there until 2005, I, uh, I was involved in one of the largest house church network. And I saw thousands of Muslims give their hearts to Christ. And a lot of them were my age. They were college age students and it was exciting, but I wanted to share this because one thing I always questioned about God was, mm-hmm. okay, God, what about people who've never heard the gospel? What if? What about countries who've never had missionaries? Like, that's not fair if right. they haven't heard the So one thing that God really showed me when I went to Iran was um, when I would start sharing with, uh, you know, I would be in a park and I would see a woman or something, I would go talk to her and say, do you know about Jesus? A lot of people I talked to, as soon as I would mention the name Jesus, they would cry and they would say, yes, I saw him in a vision. My child was dying. This woman, one of the first people I talked to, she was like, my child was dying, and I cried out to God. Instead of doing the ritualistic Islamic prayer, which you do it in Arabic, Mm -hmm. this woman is like, for the first time, I started directly talking to God, and I was like praying for my child, crying out for my child. And I saw Jesus, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And she said, I've been looking for his word ever since. I've, I've, I've been, you know, looking for um, to know more about him. So, so many testimonies like that where I heard people just crying out to God and just God revealing himself to them without any missionary or any Bible or anything. So... It really is amazing because if you talk to someone from the Middle East who became a believer, many times it it, it goes along and is equated to some supernatural event that took place. It is, and it's hard to understand in this culture, and I also don't understand it. I, um, but it it does. That's what's happening in the Middle East. It's it's happening through supernatural revelations and dreams and things like that. Yeah, and in many ways, in many ways, the Church of the New Testament, uh, the, the the apostles, they had that the, the supernatural gifts, and God used those gifts in many ways to get the church kick started back in the first century. I want to I want to go to back to the house church in Iran and, and have you explain to people. If someone asked you, what is the difference between the church in America and these house churches? How would you explain the difference between the two? Well, you know, I think uh, healthy, they're healthier. I've talked about, um, I've talked about, you know, in in the recent years, I've really, there's been, uh, as you know, part of my story is a story of abuse. And from within the church, and I know a lot of people have been turned off because of that. But um, in in the Middle East, you don't really 
serving Christ means forsaking all. You don't really benefit like we see in the church here. Like sometimes Christianity can be used here as a benefit to, you know, a better lifestyle or popularity or being a celebrity. And uh, in the Middle East, it's really when you're in the house church it's and when you're serving in a country that's going after Christians, mm-hmm. you don't really see a lot of wolves because, um, you know, the hirelings, a run when there's persecution. They don't right. want to protect the sheep. But the true pastors and true followers of Christ lay down their life. And and so the persecuted church is a healthier church, in my opinion. Okay. What I've seen uh, is a church that is willing to forsake all and pay the cost of following Christ. You know, it's not a church that fo- is focused. I've even realized growing up in America there's a lot you're told that a happy life is a family that's not ha- hasn't fallen apart. I come from a broken home and a, a family that you know a certain you have a certain lifestyle. And but the persecuted church doesn't. They've lost everything. Their their families a lot of times are torn apart. Uh, they uh, a lot of their loved ones are killed and imprisoned for because they're Christians. They've lost their belongings. And they, they see that Jesus dying on the cross, that was it. That was all that God had to give. They don't really expect more from God, like a more comfortable life or some kind of, you know, wealthy lifestyle or anything. And that has helped me, and I see the difference. It's huge, where one, you see someone just so thankful for the gift of salvation. They're mm. giving everything, laying down their life, being arrested, not seeing their children grow up. Um and uh, really literally giving their life to follow Jesus and to share the gospel versus I think the church here has gotten more comfortable, and I think a lot of the world has seeped into the church without us even knowing it. I think we've, and and, uh, and it's made us um, ineffective. We're, we've become so self-consumed and uh, focused on what we don't have, what the world is telling us we're missing to be happy, and the persecuted church is, 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 is different, and I've continued to be in touch with the persecuted church and since 20 years ago, and they've really helped me keep the focus on the gospel and carrying the torch. You know, even here locally, I share with refugees and stuff, it's that, that all they care about is that one more person would know. If God would use them that next day, they don't know if they're going to survive the next day for one more person to know about the gift of, of Jesus, of salvation, of eternal life. And that's their focus. They're really uh, just, that's their number one focus. It's not gaining anything in this world. Yeah, Matthew, it's Matthew 16, uh, verse 34. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And I, I definitely think the church in America, we, we've become lackadaisical. I mean, I, I see it even in the covid uh, pandemic thing that's happened here that so many people just don't go to church and content just being at home and watching it online and as I've talked many times I understand there's certain health situations where it might be imperative for that but we don't really live under any threat here like they live under in Iran uh, I mean there's no there's no correlation is there I mean when when Christians here think about being persecuted in America, uh, it, it doesn't compare to what's going on in different parts of the world. Uh, Nagme, we're, we, we're going to need to go to break here in just a few seconds here, but 
you're involved, your church, you, you, you live in Boise and you have a church, uh, Calvary Boise, and they, they actually have a ministry that's kind of connected with the underground church. When we come back after that break, I want to talk just for a moment about exactly how you're helping the underground church or the persecuted church, you yourself, how, how are you helping it? What is your church doing? Uh, how did they get involved in that ministry? And what could someone do today who is listening right now and, and they have a burden for the persecuted church? How can they come alongside you? How, how can they come alongside the church in Boise uh, to get plugged in? Whatever, whatever that means, how can we help make a difference? And certainly, how can we who live here in America pick up our cross, which, which really means be willing to die, be willing to sacrifice, be willing to suffer, to be all in for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Dudley Rutherford. We'll be right back after this break on SoCal Live. It's Pastor Dudley Rutherford of Shepherd Church, and I'm your afternoon host here on SoCal Live. And uh, it, it's just been a joy uh, to talk to Nogme Panahi today. And I, I remember interviewing her back when uh, her husband Saeed was, uh, uh, he was kind of known as a pastor that was uh, in an Iranian prison uh, for three years. And she was really the one on the front lines that uh, worked uh, tirelessly to free him uh, from that prison. Um, I think he, he she worked some with the Obama administration and they there was some type of prisoner swap and and um, there was there's a there are so many different stories that we could be talking about today and, and, and when I asked Nogme to come on I, I asked her what, what what is it that you'd like to talk about and uh, she made it very clear to me that she wanted to talk about the underground church or the persecuted church in America. Uh, I think I think her, she herself has been persecuted in many, many ways. Um, if you know her story, there's, there's, it's been a story of abuse that she's gone through and um, been through a lot of tough times. And yet here she is, um, this remarkable story, re- really a truly remarkable story of how God worked in her life and led her and her brother to become Christians uh, with a Muslim background that goes all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad. And then, and then she gets involved in the house church. She goes back after, after September 11th, mind you, and goes back to uh, Iran and begins um, and gets involved with one of the largest uh, church networks uh, in the Middle East, and uh, it was flourishing. And eventually, uh, just just so many different things happened. But today, you know, we're here in the year 2021, uh, post-pandemic, living in Boise, Idaho. And she goes to a church called Calvary Boise. And again, I told her earlier, my daughter lives up there. Nogme, you, you need to meet my daughter. Somehow you got to work that out because you will. She is a blessing to anyone she crosses paths with. But your church, Calvary Boise, uh, is involved. In, in fact, they can go to the website, calvaryboise.com uh, backslash underground church. That's calvaryboise.com backslash underground church. Can you tell me how, what, how you're involved in the underground church today and, and, and your church, how they got connected uh, to that? Yeah, um, I continue to... Uh, work with the underground church um, via different apps and 
uh, social medias. And so um, the church here has helped. Uh, some of the people I've worked with have had to become refugees in Turkey. And so the church here has helped me open a fund so people can donate to be able to support uh especially the um, those who've had to flee persecution to uh, locate them in a another safe country. So that's my heart right now is we as we I work with the persecuted church in Iran but there's times where they have to flee, they don't want to flee and um like kind of what happened with Afghanistan there's there's Christians that are just uh are pursued and if they don't leave they're um you know it's it's they're forced to leave and um I just my heart is to help them uh, get relocated and uh, into a safe country. So um, that's my I guess that's what I've. Uh, anyone says what can we do? That's my heart too. So are there still are, are there still churches in Iran? Christian churches are they still meeting? Are they? I mean, yes. are, are they forced? Yes. Are they above ground, underground? No, underground. So They're... I work with a lot of underground churches in Iran right now. Um, and they uh, they go the underground, meaning they meet in homes. They're not registered with the government. They are meeting secretly, uh, and uh, the way they meet uh, is in a way that cannot uh, go under the radar. Um, and the government sees uh, the spread of Christianity is very uh, happening very quickly in Iran, and the government sees that as the number one threat to their national security. So. They see it kind of like terrorism. They 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 see it as a very big threat to their Islamic government. But it continues to grow um, despite the persecution, despite um, people being killed for their faith and being arrested. And um, my heart is to stand with the persecuted church. Um, and as you know, I've uh, as I've you've kind of uh, I know you recently listened to the Julie Boys report with uh, some of my story coming out of abuse and things like that. And another part of my heart has been to, uh, is really hurting for the church here, people who have suffered abuse under the name of Christianity. And mm. I kind of see it the same way in a way. Right. Uh, you know, the organization deals with persecuted Christian that have started, we don't accept donations, but um, um, but we also help uh, abused women. Um or, you know, anyways, I, I see oppression as something that is uh, God does not stand for. It's something right. that we see throughout the Bible. And so oppression of someone who has a different belief in the Middle East that is being oppressed by the government and persecuted, and also people who've been hurt and oppressed by, uh, by people who call themselves Christians. And my heart is to really speak about that and that that's not who Christ is. Yeah. Christ was against use of power for oppression and um so if somebody wants yeah. to get a hold of you they they just do that through social media and through facebook or uh, that's kind of the best way right yeah, just to, to look you up on facebook mm-hmm. and uh but but you're doing well your children are doing well I, I you have a standing invitation i told you this anytime you want to go to disneyland which i haven't gone for 30 years but if you ever want to go and bring your kids <laughs> uh i'm gonna i'm gonna it's on my nickel. We're gonna we're gonna take care of your kids and make sure they have a good day if, if that ever happens. I but, think when you offered that, they were four and five. Now they're like thirteen and fifteen. This is actually a better time to take them when they're when they're <laughs> yeah, older because uh, you don't have to carry them. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I want to talk just for a moment about um, 
you know, I was reading today the story of uh, just, you know, thinking about your life and, and ministry uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen was the very first Christian martyr, a, a man who was a believer and was uh, put to death. And literally, his life was taken from him. And that's happening in the Middle East as well. I mean, we, we don't face the persecution here in this country like, like it happens. Uh, and again, in China, in, uh, in the Middle East, and other parts of the world. But there was this guy named Saul who was there, and he was giving uh, his approval. Like he's there nodding, he's clapping when this, when this Stephen was being stoned to death. He, he was literally clapping his hands and nodding and approving of this death of this Christian. And then in Acts chapter 8, this great persecution breaks out, and everyone is, is, is scattered. In verse 2 in chapter 8, they bury Stephen. And the Bible says in Acts 8.3 that Paul starts going house to house, uh, destroying the church, literally destroying the church. But verse 4 says that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Mm-hmm. And that in the midst of that persecution became a catalyst uh, for the gospel to spread. And I, you know, I, I, I couple that together with that, uh, with that other verse that, that talks about that in Second Timothy, that anyone who or everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I get back to this, I always get back to this truth that we don't face the persecution, and, and we just have a couple of minutes here, we, we don't face the persecution the rest of the, the world faces because we're not truly living for Jesus Christ in this country. We, we, we have a form of, of biblical Christianity, but there is, and I know you're big into this, into repentance and seeing repentance in, in, in my life, in your life, in everybody's life. Um, and, and it's that call of, of God yeah. for us to turn towards him and truly, yeah. I just preached to the Beatitudes and, 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 you know, to be poor in spirit means that you get, you've got to get to a point where you realize that you're nothing without God, absolutely nothing without, without exactly. God. And then you become, uh, then, then you become, uh, then you begin to mourn over your sins and we can't go through on to the rest of the Beatitudes if you can't get back past the first two. And uh, we're just exactly. not there as a people. And uh, Nagme, I just have to say one of the things I appreciate about you is just your love for the Word of God, your hunger for the Word of God. And um, it's just it is an amazing— I do st- want to say, yeah. I, I do want to say we really need to get back to that. We've become so busy. Uh, we need to get back to carving out time in prayer and Word of God, and and we daily being washed by His Word because the world is continually staying in, affecting us, and to continually focus back on Him. And I, I do believe there's a call to repentance and turning back to Him on on especially on this nation. We've been distracted for too long. And and just just a few seconds to explain how that that being going through those rough times and being being a part of the persecuted church helps keep your focus on on God or how you you it forces you to focus on God. Yeah, we just it, this world, the persecution, the heartbreak, the you know, and people in this country, we go through different. It's not as bad as the Middle East, but we're all suffering in some way. I think to use that as a tool to run to God and pour out our hearts to God and seek Him. And He will. He is calling us in to really spend time. When we love someone, we spend time with them. So um, what I've learned through my loss, I had love, I just lost my dad last year, 
And um, what I've learned, what I've really learned this year is, like you said, I am nothing. I went through a time where I just felt paralyzed, and I knew that if I could walk, if I could talk, eat, it was all by grace of God. And it really brought me to a place of dependency on God and learning what it means to continually pray and continually align myself with God. Amen. Nagme, I am really sorry, but I'm I'm about 10 seconds away from a hard break here. But I, I thank you. I wish I had been a better friend to you for all you've been through, but I hope that we can stay in touch, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us. This is Nagme Panani uh, I've been interviewing, and my name is Dudley Rutherford. Thank you again for joining us here on SoCal Live in Los Angeles. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.